Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Bill Shorter, Dreyfus Asprey on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm well. How are you, Larry? Really good. Nice to see you. Great to be here. So you grew up in this area. You grew up in Brooklyn. I grew up in Brooklyn, correct. What was that like? Uh, it was interesting. It was a different Brooklyn then. It was not the Brooklyn of artists and chefs then. It was more uh, gangsters and bookies kind of Brooklyn. But uh, it was very interesting. What was that decade? Well... I was born in 1947, so I was there in the 50s, Brooklyn in the 50s and you know early 60s. So it was an interesting time. Um, I was raised in an area between Greenwood Cemetery and the docks, the docks of last exit in Brooklyn. It was an interesting area. Did you keep out of trouble mostly? For the most part. <laughs> nice pause. <laughs> yeah. It was my grandmother always to say, Bill, there's one thing you have to do is get out of here, <laughs> get out from here. But uh, now it's called Greenwood Heights and real estate values are way up. What was your move? What did you do after? Uh... So I went to school in Pennsylvania at Villanova. And shortly after finishing school, I started teaching school in St. Thomas in the Virgin Islands. So I spent two glorious years teaching there. That seems like that'd be great. It was wonderful. They put an ad in the New York Times in the United States, and people from all over the United States descended on uh, St. Thomas in, in the early 70s. So it was, it was a great time. It was great people, great time, beautiful place. And you were into teaching? I was into teaching. Uh, I was a marketing major at Villanova. It was the 60s, and I said, well, uh, I'm not going to contribute too much to the military-industrial complex. And uh, With Vietnam going on and stuff? Vietnam was going on, uh, and uh, I, I thought teaching would you know, be a pretty moral thing to do. Also, it was at one point draft deferrable, <laughs> something I was trying to do. So uh, that's what was going on then. And how long were you a teacher? After I came back from St. Thomas, to the New York area, I started working in Bedford-Stuyvesant, teaching elementary school. And I stayed there for a couple of years while I was getting my master's degree at Columbia at the Teachers College. And then I started teaching in East Harlem for about eight years. So I guess in the New York City public schools for 10 years. 
And what'd you take from that? A love of children and a love of teaching. Uh, a lot of people couldn't do it, but I took to it. And uh, in fact, today I still work with kids in, in Washington Heights, Northern Harlem. I run a program together with uh, Bill Roden, who's a writer for the New York Times. Uh, we run it out of the Church of the Intercession, and it's a sports program every Saturday. And I work with these great, fun kids, and we try to expose them to a number of different uh, sporting things and cultural things. And Who did you see make, make it as a teacher? What were the qualities that successful teachers had? You had to be resilient. You had to be, have a great sense of humor. You had to uh, be organized. You had to stick to what you wanted to do. You had to know what you were going to do going in. And you had to go with the flow a little bit. So exactly like wine sales. <laughs> exactly. I mean, there are so many, so many comparisons, I mean, between teaching. I mean, the, teaching is part of what we do. So you know, I, use, I use those skills all the time. And what was the segue from teaching? Especially controlling them. <laughs> <laughs> when it works, right? <laughs> That's true. What was the segue between teaching in, in New York public schools and then working in the wine business? Like many teachers, I thought about a second job. And I began working at a restaurant on Hudson Street called The Commissary. And although I'd never really done any wait service, or even waited on a table ever, I became a captain at The Commissary. And the part that I loved the most was wine. I made fast friends with the, the sommelier there. That's cool and that they had a sommelier there. They did, yeah. He was, he was a good guy. I mean, he wasn't a full-time sommelier, but... You know, we talked a lot and talked about the wines. And um, I said, this is really cool. This is, you know, this is the way my mind works. It's fascinating. It's geography. It's art. And I, you know, I took to it. So, uh, what was selling at that time? Basically, there were a lot fewer wines around. You know, it was Cabernet and Chardonnay and, you know, the basic things. A little Pinot was around and um, Sauvignon Blanc, a little Sauvignon Blanc uh, from. Mostly California, there was a little Burgundy, of course, Bordeaux, but far fewer regions than we have in the market today. This is the 70s. This was the 70s. Yeah, this was the late 70s when this was happening. And what was the restaurant like? I mean, it was a fun restaurant. The, the food was quite good. It was, uh, it was an upscale restaurant. It was in Soho, so it was... You know, it had a little artistic bent. One of the owners was an artist, so his paintings were on the wall. And, you know, I remember waiting on uh, some very, very interesting people there. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was a good time. I mean, it sounds like that was kind of happening. It like, was a happening place. It was Soho a happening place. In the 70s. That's right. It was a happening place. Yeah. And uh, uh, I don't think it lasted that long, but... So it really was a happening place. It was. Because those, right. those places right. are the ones that never last. <laughs> That's right. So, um, and then um, I got a little job at the old Cork and Bottle. I think Cork and Bottle's still there. Cork and Bottle, and uh, I was doing that while I was still teaching. And uh, I was reading everything I could get my hands on, on wine. What was and, that at that time? I mean, was there a lot around or? Um, there were, there were a few, I'm looking at a few books on your shelf here that were from that, you know, a couple from that, that time. You're saying I haven't bought any new books. You're saying I'm cheap. <laughs> That's some contemporary. They're on, the, they're on the Kindle. So. <laughs> All right. That's it. Um, 
Yeah, I was doing, I was reading and, you know, and of course I was using the employee discount at Cork and Bottle to taste whatever I could, which was the, the great part of it. And then I started taking courses around. Uh, the first course I took was Kevin's course at uh, Kevin's Israeli. Kevin's Israeli's course at uh, Windows. What was that like? It was good. I, you know what? It was interesting. I, when I think back on it, there were people in that course that were really serious about it, and there were people on that course like cruising and you know in there for a party and everything. But you know, Kevin had that sort of, like, really wide appeal. Has that really wide appeal? So uh, it was really really interesting, and he got me interested in. It. And you know, it's a funny thing. I went to Kevin when I got offered my first job at Dreyfus. And I said, Kevin, you know, what do you think? Think I should go for this? I've been teaching for a while. And he said, you know, that's a funny, uh, a funny thing, Bill, because that's the job I wanted when I came down from upstate. I wanted to be the metro manager for Dreyfus Ashby. Said, oh, then I guess I'll grab this one, you know, Kevin. Yeah. So he said, yeah. That's go a good motivational yeah. speech. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's... That, then I took a course with a really good guy, Rory Callahan, Sensory Components of Wine, which I thought was, it really, you know, gave me an idea of what I was working with. It wasn't just facts and this wine's from here and this is the sort, but I really got to understand that we tasted different components of wine and, you know, Rory's a great teacher. So, uh, And there were some courses based around a restaurant. So the old, there was this, a restaurant called Lavin's. Uh, which uh, Melissa and Patrick Saray, they rented the basement and they'd have a number, we had a number of courses down there. It was a good group and I liked Melissa and Patrick, their teaching style and and I took all of their courses and eventually, uh, Patrick was at that time in management at Dreyfus Ashby and um, Melissa, I apparently told Melissa about an opening that had come up at Dreyfus and Melissa said, you know, Bill, you might want to think about it. And uh, I jumped at it, and lo, 32 years later, here I am. You worked for Dreyfus for 32 years? Yes. That seems like a long time. It's a long time. I'm the longest tenured salesperson, I think, in the history of the company at this point. Yeah, I started in 1983. And what was it like at that time? It was fewer Fewer wines, as I said. It was peerless as a distributor and charmer as a distributor, and this wonderful competition and all these colorful characters and working with these uh, salespeople who were amazing and you know the accounts and you had a, a lot fewer representatives out there on the street, uh, but it was it was a good time. It was still you know a fairly uh, rigorous kind of approach uh, you still had to get out there and get in front of people and talk about your wines and know what you were talking about if you didn't you know there was no way that you were going to have any kind of longevity in the business probably fewer sales reps but also probably fewer restaurants fewer restaurants yeah the high-end level is probably not a whole lot yes fewer restaurants fewer stores uh that would you know work with our kind of wines at dreyfus so, you know, over time, I established relationships with those people. I remember, I remember visit, going to Maraschet, and uh, Daniel Janus was the head sommelier there, and Drew was on the floor then. And I remember one specific situation where I was waiting to see Daniel, and there was, the, he was pouring some wine for some men that were dining. 
and they were having fogua and he suggested you know riesling or something really perfect with fogua and they said no we'll just try that cabernet <laughs> and daniel was like I, i've tried i've tried <laughs> you know but you know we still have a great relationship and he's a real gentleman and what was the in the dreyfus book at that time what were you selling i should say that dreyfus we've had a number of our brands from the very beginning drew obviously drew was in the book then. We had Hugel from Alsace, which was very good. I remember selling a lot of Hugel. And then a few Italian brands that we, we had uh, over time. Uh, we didn't have too many New World wines at that time. A couple of California, I don't, uh, Spalding Vineyards and, and things like that that I don't think even exist anymore. What was the history of Dreyfus as a company? I mean, what was it like so, when you got to- so Michel Dreyfus is it was Dreyfus Ashby. Uh, Michel Dreyfus he was uh, uh, went to London and he started Dreyfus Ashby. There was a Colonel Ashby, but uh, from what I understand, he didn't too play too, too much of a part in Dreyfus Ashby. At least not after 1945. But so in 1945, after the war, then Michel Dreyfus moved here to New York, and that's when he real uh, Michel Dreyfus was on the street. You know, he had a a little uh, helper called Jules, who was became like legendary and was going into all these restaurants, the the old mostly the old French restaurants, and and it you know Michel was was there. He always uh, had his corkscrew and he always was uh, out in the restaurants. And if you talk to some of the some of the old restaurateurs, a, co- a couple of them are still around, and he'll they'll tell you about Michel and Jules. But then in '85. The Druan family purchased a big portion of Dreyfus. Yeah. So the Druan family then, uh, when Shenley, which was an owner of Dreyfus, was dissembled, was Druan rescued us, really. And the fine wine division of Shenley was Dreyfus Ashby at that point. And Druan went way over and, and, and purchased us. And then shortly after, he purchased Demendru in Oregon, and which was a great move and a very brave move, you know, especially since he just made a big purchase in, in Dreyfus Ashby. And so that was Robert Jerome. Yeah. What was he like to be around and work with? Oh, wonderful. Wonderful gentleman. I mean, still, he's still, you know, you can retire these guys, but yeah, there. I mean, he's there. But, uh, last time I was there at, at Vintage, he was right there. He was sorting, and you know he was right in there. So uh, you know, it was just wonderful to work for. But the whole family, the whole family, it's just a, I mean, I wouldn't be there if it weren't that case. Wonderful people. And it seems like there's been a lot of evolution in the Burgundy market over the 30 years. <laughs> More producers. It was just us and Jado back in the day, you know. We were like the Hertz, and we were trying to catch them, you know. But... Um, so many more now, so many more, and so many little appellations from Burgundy. And Did what you were bringing in expand from Drouin? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, beside the men Drouin, we, got, we have a few more appellations now. I mean, it doesn't, it's, you know, it's, it's Burgundy, so it's been there for a while, and, you know, but, and they work in about 100 different appellations, the Drouins. And sometimes we'll bring in something in a, in a, that, in a good year that, we won't see for a couple more vintages, and then it'll reappear. 
whether it's availability or the quality is, is right. What have been some of your favorite bottlings from Druin over the years? What are the ones that really stand out for you in terms of like, oh, that's a real cherry wine amongst that portfolio? I love Chambol from Druin. I mean, obviously, you know, Amaruz is, but it's so little. But any Chambol from Druin has been just amazing. I really like their Volnay. I really liked Cote de Bon. You know, Druins are in Bon, and that little appellation Cote de Bon is a value. People don't know it that well. They think Cote de Bon Village, Cote de Nuit Village, but Cote de Bon, both red and white. Unfortunately, I tried very hard to get the white in this market, but the English take all of that Cote de Bon white. But the Cote de Bon red is a wonderful, sort of under the radar wine. And then, of course, you know, the obvious one, Gevray Pomade. Uh, in the whites, I mean, Poligny is what I, you know, I, I, I just love. Uh, if we go into Poligny, Merceau, I I gravitate a little more toward Poligny. And what have you learned about the Giron house over the time that you've been working with it, which is a long time? What I've learned is that they are true to their style, which wasn't always popular. It was getting slammed in the 80s and 90s. But now they're, you know, they're the darling of that style. The elegance, the balance. Even before I got in the business, I was drinking Druin wines. One of my uh, students' father worked for Dreyfus Ashby. And every once in a while, after I just started getting into wine, he would bring me Druin wine. And I said, oh, my God, this is a revelation, you know. So, um, I mean, I I really, I love the fact that they've been true to their style. And I like the way the four children have worked their way. I mean, Veronique is the winemaker, and she's back and forth between Bon and Demendruen. She has four children. And Frederic works in, as the CEO. Laurent lives here. He's the export manager. Philippe is the vineyard manager. I mean, this is what he wants to do. He's, he loves the land. And so uh, they, they work very well and there's a great separation of duty uh, in it. And I, and I see all good things ahead for that family. It's just been a pleasure. So they were not always getting big renown for the style of the wines no, in the 90s. No, you could imagine. I mean, you know, there, were not, there was not enough extraction. There was not enough uh, fruit in the wines, both red and white, and especially red. And uh, they were, you know, I, I like acidity, and not everybody in those decades love acidity you know so yeah they were getting pretty hurt in the views how have you seen the wines develop and bottle over time i well for instance i had claude mouche 1937 not too long ago and we were like well open it and then just pour it right away and before it opened it it was perfect it was it was really perfect I mean, the wines developed very, very well. Obviously, some vintage are better than other, but you know, they they developed really, really well. And I love those appellations that I mentioned. With the rise of Domaine Burgundy, have you ever had to like kind of convince the people on the market that negotiants could make good wine? Like, it was ever? it was the bane of my existence for a very long time. I mean, it, it's such uh, it was uh, like in in people's minds, even supposedly learned people, they would, they would see wines either as negotiant wines or domain wines. 
And as you know, it's not the case. I mean, some of these domain producers are buying grapes from all of their friends and, you know. And, but even before that, back, going back, when Druen, you know, Druen, as I said, owns about 200 acres in Burgundy. And I think he's the fourth largest landowner now. But it was always, uh, it's a negotiant wine. I prefer not, not to work with negotiant. So I told you, I've had to really fight that throughout my, my tenure at Dreyfus. Yeah. What's your way of approaching that discussion? I mean, what works? I mean, I tell you? them just, I tell them he's the fourth largest landowner. And, he, you know, he's not, uh, he's a negotiant elevator. He, he's bringing up these wines and uh, he's producing wines and he has his own ideas and philosophy about producing wine. And he's had, with the people where he's buying wine, he's had relations, you know, he took over at a very young age, Robert. So he's had relationships with these growers for a very long time, you know. So he's producing uh, what he wants to produce, and he always, he's, in 90% of the cases, he's buying grapes, not juice. So he's making the wine he wants to make. And what have been some standout vintages that you remember over a period of time of working with Drew? 90. I'm trying to go back. I liked 88 a lot. Me too. Yeah. Moussigny 88 from Drew is rocking. Yep. <laughs> I liked 95. I liked 96 a lot. I liked 2000. 2001, and a lot of people didn't like. I liked it a lot. 2002, a lot of people liked. I liked it too. 2005, 6, I liked. And. I like the eight, 2008, I like. And it's a, there are some real good values among the 2008s, and smart people are jumping on them. Uh, 2009, everybody liked and jumped all over it. Vintage I love is 2010. I love it, you know. And these most recent vintages, it's going to be interesting to see. But 12 and 13 might be very surprising for some people. Because, I mean, the Cote de Bon got a lot of hail, and they're heavy in the Cote yeah, de Bon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Drew, Cote, uh, Bon Cote de Mouche got devastated both those years. So we'll, we'll see. This year, 2014. I wonder what that's about, all this hail. So how did your role at Dreyfus evolve over time? I started out very much as a street guy. I like to call it a missionary man, which is uh, like, like a utility infielder. You, know, you do whatever you have to do. And frankly, that's, I mean, I think in a company like Dreyfus that you have to do that. You have to step up, even now, do what you have to do. And, you know, uh, whether it be, a, some people say it's like a 24-hour part-time job. You know, people call me on Sunday. I'm going to respond to those people, and they appreciate that. I found that to be the case with you. Yeah, I mean, I... You were a helpful dude, like when it came to getting stuff done. Yeah, because I, I mean, I, if you're, in, if you're, bought into the company and you know i am then that's what you're going to do you know you're going to this is my this is my business and this is what we do so i did that for a while and then i became full-fledged you know metro manager uh i was working basically in new york then for a while we were thinking of uh merging with a company called caravelle Mouton Cadet, et cetera, which was not a good idea. 
and, and which really never came about. We, we, did, we did it for a little while. We got some good people out of that. So that I was like uh, managing a team, great people during that period. And uh, we were all over New York. It was, it was a good time. Then I became a regional director with Dreyfus. There are like five regional directors in the country. And now I'm basically covering New York State, all of it, which is very interesting. Uh, not Because I've always been very focused in Manhattan. And my rhythms are Manhattan rhythms. Uh, so suddenly I'm covering Rochester and and Buffalo and Saratoga and uh, and that's what I'm doing from you know the Hamptons all the way to Buffalo. How do those um, markets okay. differ? Well, that's interesting. And just a little story. I I remember when I first started doing, and it wasn't too long ago, uh, about two and a half years ago, when our, one of our guy, the guy who covered that retired. I went up there on my first visit, and I was in a store, and I had like six wines, and I'm presenting to the store owner, and I'm doing it at my New York pace. And he says, why are you rushing? I said, whoa. Oh, was I rushing? He said, why are you rushing? Slow down. Relax. You know, so there are some differences. Uh, you know, Pinot, uh, I have to be careful with the pricing, you know. We also represent Comte de Vaugway and wines at that level. It's very select. In those markets, it's very, very selective. Some very selective stores up there that work with that. You're really talking about a handful of people that can. Exactly. Also, the Moyex properties, same thing. Exactly, exactly. Works. Yeah. So, what's it like to deal with Duran on one side and Comte de Vaugway on, on another portion of the book? I mean, is that the same market as, you know, in terms of Manhattan? In, in some, in some, among some wines, yeah, it's true. There, there's people who love. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you this, and I won't say who, but there are people who love Drouin, and uh, they're not. They don't find De Vogue way too transporting, you know. And then vice versa, of course. The people all over me for De Vogue way. I mean, I don't have to try to sell De Vogue way. People fighting me and saying, I thought I was going to get that case of Chambon-Mousse-Mousse-Mousse. You gave it to me last year, the Bourgogne Blanc. Why didn't I get it? You know, it would work in my restaurant. So those kind of wines, of course, the same thing with Petrus. You know, we represent that portfolio. Among other uh, importers, we represent that portfolio, the Moex portfolio. What about Moex? I mean, Burgundy on one side, totally on fire. Bordeaux, the market's a little different these days. Yep. What was that evolution like, watching that for 30 years? And it was, so, it was interesting because it was back then, Bordeaux was absolutely on fire. And, uh, and then, uh, I guess, I, I don't know why exactly that happened, but I did see it fall a little bit. Again, maybe just too many wines and confusion among consumers. And, but... Yeah, I mean, I do see I see that happen. I mean, not for Petrus, not for so much for Chateauneuf. What about the difference between selling Drouin from Burgundy and Drouin from Oregon? How has that evolved over? That's roughly the same period of time that you've been there. Roughly, yeah. Uh, she it started in 1988 was the first vintage, and that you know we I remember they said telling us the price. And we said, wow, really? That Pinot Noir from Oregon? Is that going to be the price? Which was high. I don't know. It was ridiculously low. 
by today's standards, but, and we said, well, let's see, you know, and now, I mean, it's iconic and we can't keep it in stock. It's totally allocated. Veronique is amazing. You know, it, it's easier, much easier now to sell Oregon Pinot. And I mean, they brought so much technology there with them. And I remember we used to sell Irie Vineyards for a while and David Lett, you know, Papa Pino, he said, you know, of all the wineries, I really respect the Mandruin the most. He said, that's the one I, I love to drink the most, along with my own, of course. Yeah. So that has really been a dream. It's come along. I mean, they've had their ups and downs, but it's, it's worked out really well. And they purchased a new vineyard yes, recently. Yes, Rose, uh, Rose Rock Vineyard, 225 acres. That should be uh, in a couple of years. We should have some wine from them. Sure, they're not sure what they're going to do with it yet, but they knew they needed to expand a bit. And I mean, back to your question, I mean, how's it? There's a lot more wine to sell from Burgundy. A lot more wine. I mean, one of the interesting things with the Druan wines, I mean, you are talking about some basic wines. You're talking about Lafarets, Mekong, Beaujolais, things like that. And that some days I have to have that head when I'm going out. I know who I'm going to see, and that's where I want to focus. And then, you know, they're the other people. They used to tell us, let's try and balance it. Not so much anymore. We know who we have to sell X to, and we don't have to sell Y to. It's usually not a surprise to you that somebody is interested in the Amaroos as opposed to the Lafourette. Right. That's, that's usually kind of a given going in the door. Right. And what about some of the more far-flung properties, like the project in India? What's that about? Uh, Rajiv Samant, he worked in Silicon Valley for a few years, and then he got kind of bored. And just at the same time, trade restrictions were opening up in India. And so he wanted to go back. He went back. There was a property there his father had that he wanted. the father wanted to sell it. And he said, oh, don't sell it yet. Let me take a look at it. And he tried some things. He tried like orchids and all sorts of things. But it turned out that that area was a table grape area. And so he said, let me, uh, let me give it a shot. And he called his friend Terry Damsky from Sonoma. And they looked at it and they brought in some. Terry said, why not? Let's give it a shot. You know, it's a very exciting idea. I mean, it was, uh, the, it was, the elevation was right, or at least the best they could hope for there. And they started, and I want to say it was, uh, what was it, like 95, something like that. And uh, now, I mean, he's, you know, the Mondavi of Mumbai, and uh, he's got a distributorship. Uh, he's making a number of different wines. They were like, he was the only one there in Nashi, where, where they are. And there are 30 wineries now. He's, he has a rock festival that he runs. He's got a guest house, a couple of restaurants. So, I mean, he really created a, an industry. Sula certainly is number one in India, and it's growing. What's it like to sell those wines in New York State? Very interesting question, Levy, because I thought I would sell them in Indian restaurants. And I, I drew the parallel with Kingfisher beer. Let's give it a shot. Hmm. I don't know. What else do you sell? Do you have anything from South Africa? I say, just couldn't believe that they were making wine in India. I mean, it wasn't part of that Raj thinking, you know, like it was not spirits or beers. So it, it was very difficult to sell in the Indian restaurants. It's getting better. 
there are some people who have been, if you've been to India and you come back and you see what Sula is in India, then you can have it in your restaurant, you know, but in the early days of trying to sell that one, it was not, it wasn't that easy. Actually, the American restaurants with the, the sommeliers were saying, well, yeah, that'd be interesting. Let's do that. Maybe some more American retailers too. Yeah, but it's still not an easy sell. Those Indian wines are not easy, an easy sell, Sula, not an easy sell. So what about the evolution of the New York market? I mean, more restaurants now, more sommeliers. What's it like on the street now? First of all, Brooklyn didn't really exist. I mean, there was a little thread there in Brooklyn Heights that there were a couple of restaurants there. Of course, there was the River Cafe, you know, great restaurants like that. But now, wow, <laughs> it's just exploded. When I first started there weren't too many people buying wine in restaurants that were working toward, for instance, WSET or Master Sommelier. And now there are people that are very, very serious in a regimented way about having real knowledge in wine. And I think that's, I think that's great. I think that, from, in my opinion now or in my feeling, I think that sometimes it could get extreme in that just sort of just talking about little factoids about wine can be a little tedious and it can it can sort of color your appreciation of wine and I think that tr- just working from feeling sometimes and trying to understand what the winemaker is trying to do and stepping back in a broader way. I know that's how I've, my perception has changed a little bit over time. What's he trying to do? What's this, what's he trying to do here with this wine? And so, although I have great respect for people who are in pursuit of degrees, et cetera, like that, I think that the best of them are those who keep that perspective as well. And what have been moments for you where you felt like, Oh, okay. I think I'm becoming more empathetic to the producer here. I think that's more important than the the small things. What have been moments where you thought, huh? Well, I think visiting these people, I mean, that's a revelation for me. You know, you're in the winery, you're in the vineyard, uh, you talk to them eye to eye, face to face, and somehow get to understand in in a kind of a profound way what exactly they're trying to do with their wine and with their property. And you know that history and you really have a lot of respect for it. And you really know that they're honest producers. And that goes a long way for me. I think a lot of times the people getting into the wine business are a little younger these days than maybe in the 80s, 70s. You know, you had that 10-year teaching career. I think sometimes people who are 21, 22 have decided already that their sommelier is what they want to do, you know? If one of them came to you and said, hey, Bill, you know, I respect you a lot. I see how you move in the world. Mm-hmm. What's the key to having a 30, 40-year career in the wine business? What would you tell them? So that has happened. People have come and they said, can we sit down, have a drink? Let's talk about it. The thing is, I mean, you really have to have a stick to and You have to really, do you enjoy what you're doing day to day? Do you like working with these people because you're going to work with people and you're going to get have wonderfully wonderful days 
and then you're going to have days where the bear sort of wins. And uh, you're going to have maybe some supervisor along the way who's going to be a little difficult. And then you're going to have people that you say, wow, this, is, this, this guy's a wonderful guy, and, and I can't think of anybody I'd rather work for more. You know? So I, you have to just be resilient. Uh, you have to be uh, love working with people and find people interesting. And uh, you really have to love wine. I mean, you really have to love wine. I mean, not just be able to regurgitate factoids about it. And I've seen people like that where I, I wonder, do you, you really love wine? Do you really love this stuff? You know, that's what I would say. I mean, there's, certainly you can do that, have that kind of career. I don't know, New York would be, is kind of different. I mean, walking out on the street now with a book, scary to me a little bit. I mean, I certainly would be very scared to do it without any kind of relationship or without a new book, especially with new brands to the market. Wow. Uh, you you got to be young to do that. <laughs> you have to have youth. How many times are the relationships that you have with buyers decade or longer relationships? How many times have you met someone 15 years ago that still buys from you today? Oh, it's, it's a few. There are a few like that. Yeah. There are a few wonderful people that I've, that I've worked with over time. So many people that I've, I still have worked with for 10, 15 years. When you look at buyers who have been successful and sellers who have been successful, because I consider you sell side, like mm -hmm. you're a seller. Mm -hmm. If I were a young person, I would think, man, maybe I should go into distribution. Maybe I should work in a restaurant. What should I be thinking about? Exactly. Well, that, that exactly the way you just put that, I think a lot of the uh, young buyers are like still playing that game of tennis in their head. You know, like, what should I do? Well, maybe it'd be interesting. There's a better quality of life, maybe selling these wines. You know, I wouldn't have to be there on the weekend. But I think that the best ones have, you know, sort of settled into it. Over time, I think you know what you do best. You know, I haven't seen a lot of people that have started as buyers make, really make that successful jump for some reason. So a lot of different changes in the wholesale market in New York. A lot more distributors now, smaller a books. A lot more distributors. Oh, my gosh, there's so many uh, small distributors. Now there's uh, Empire and Southern, uh, you know, and the medium-sized people, the Weinbos and the Dreyfuses and the Maison Markendemann and all sorts of permutations of the three-tier system, some people doing direct importing, accounts doing direct importing, I mean, all of that has changed over time. Charlie Serra likes to say, when we started, there were a lot fewer wines, and they were not all very good. And now there's a lot of wines, and they're almost all very good. And I think it's, it's talking about technology, et cetera. But I don't know if I agree with him 100%, but it, yeah, it's true that you know, there's a lot of wines out there, and, and they're, uh, they're pretty good across the board. What do the buyers ask you now that maybe they didn't ask you in the past? I mean, what are the kinds of questions that you might get now that you didn't used to remember getting asked? There's a lot more talk about organic and sustainable. You know, is it biodynamic? Why is this wine in such a heavy bottle? You know, things like that. I mean, I feel like I was, I've been asked every question. Are you out of the 2002? You know, I like to, you know, wine ain't widgets. Sorry. <laughs> but what's the key to growing a brand? What's necessary to get the message out? Well, first of all, you have to 
faith in the brand. I mean, you have to, you, you just go out there and say, look, you've got to try this Alvarino. This is really very, very good. And it's infectious, you know? I mean, okay, you know, you say it enough times, bring it. Let's taste it. Let's, let's try that, you know? I, I think that's the first thing. You've got to have faith in what you're selling. And I feel that way. I'm so happy and lucky to uh, have a portfolio that I, I really love. But how much is it the soft sell from you? I feel like you're in some degree a soft sell guy. Uh, subtly. I mean, I can, I can turn it up, and I know when I'm turning it up. Because uh, you sold me two cases of Albarino when you came in, so <laughs> maybe you're right. I don't know. That's right. I, and I have a couple of other ideas before I leave. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, yeah, I think that you burn out pretty quick if you're going to be pushing people too hard. You say the wrong thing and you're out. You know, so uh, I think you have to be patient and, you know, know when to say things and read people. And I guess the whole thing is leave the ego at the door. With that patience, you've probably seen buyer positions turn quite quickly oh sometimes. Oh like all of a sudden yeah. it's a different guy yeah. and girl. Yeah. Yeah. Turn very, very quickly. And then you've got to start dealing with a new personality. And also something we didn't talk about too much is keeping a relationship with distributor reps. I mean, we distribute our wines through Larber Imports, the fine wine division of Southern. So trying to keep a balanced relationship with them, because I'm doing selling, that takes some finesse. And I'm not always successful at it, but I try. And I have, I have great, just as I have great respect for my fellow reps in this business, I have great respect for distributor salespeople. I mean, I've seen some great ones over the years, great ones. Uh, I try to keep that relationship going. What's the keys to working well on the distributor side when you're in the middle? You have to be transparent. You have to communicate. Today I sold 2008 Chassonia Marche Red to somebody. The distributor doesn't have 2008. The salesman may go in and see Drew and Chassonia Marche, may not notice the vintage. Wow. You know, wow, why is that there? I should, you know, I have to still, thanks for, I have to remember to tell the salesman, look, he wanted that old vintage. He specifically asked for 2008. You don't have that in inventory. You haven't had it for a couple of years. So that's why it happened. But you're great, doing a great job. (laughs) (laughs) So a lot of times the role that Dreyfus can play is kind of a a larger seller inventory, a, a placeholder inventory that maybe the distributor doesn't want to take on all of those SKUs. And you can hold yeah, I mean, on. we have that selling direct license because we, we want uh, very heavily allocated lines like Moex and uh, Devogue. We don't put in a distributor. So we have that. So if there's a, some of our big distributors shut down, as you know, in New York. And if during shutdown, somebody says, my God, I'm out of Macon Village, you know. And Bill, what am I going to do? I said, well, for now, you know, we're going to send you some Mekong. We'll send you five cases of Mekong until lava opens up. We'll keep the placement. And, you know, most, most salespeople appreciate that. Bill Short, he's been in it for the long term, and he's been keeping placements in the market. Thank you very much for being here today. Uh, it's been my pleasure, Levy. Bill Short, a long-term player with Dreyfish Ashby in New York. Thank you very much. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. 
Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.